Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Once again, welcome, Emmanuel Faith. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy to have you with us. If you're joining us over in the chapel or online, a special welcome to you also. Well, it's almost the most wonderful time of the year. Or as I like to call it, Mariah Carey season. I was in the dentist this week and I was sitting there waiting for my son. And for the very first time this year, I heard all I want for Christmas is you. And I wondered to myself, how many more times will I hear that before December 25th? And so I sent my wife this meme picture. I texted it to her from the dentist's office. Um, this is Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. And this is me just trying to enjoy my life. And I feel like she's coming after me. You know what I mean? <laughs> Did you know that Mariah makes over $3 million every Christmas season off royalties on that song alone. Merry Christmas to her, right? <laughs> and Mariah is absolutely famous for her diva antics. I, I mean, her uh, assistant uses her microwave for her. She doesn't microwave anything on her own. And, and even the fact that Mariah's microwaving anything is shocking to be quite honest. Someone holds her drink for her while she takes a drink. Someone walks in front of her so that she doesn't trip and fall. Did you know that when Mariah Carey gave birth to her twins, she choreographed it so that as she was giving birth to her twins, there was a, a song, her song, Fantasy, being played while her kids were born. And it was at the point as they came out of the birth canal where there was a standing ovation being given to her. That's what she wanted. Her first thing that her kids would hear is her getting a standing ovation. It's a bold move, friends. That's a bold move. Uh, she was invited to uh, President Obama and uh, Michelle's um, inauguration ceremony. And at the dinner afterwards, she left frustrated because she wasn't seated at the first couple's table. She's like, I'm out of here. If I'm not sitting with them, I'm not sitting anywhere. It's sort of the way the world works. I mean, the more money you have, the more power you have, the more influence you have, the more you typically use it to serve yourself. I mean, that's what, that's what King Charles is known for doing. I mean, he has somebody who irons his shoelaces for him. <laughs> if any of you want to do that for me, I guess I would take it. You know, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. Um, King Charles has had someone from the day he was born who both dressed and undressed him. There's one biographer that said, Prince Char now, now King Charles has never dressed or undressed himself ever, ever. Do you know that Frank, Frank Sinatra had his butler wash his underwear for him by hand and straightened his toupee for him, followed him around and straightened his toupee for him in case it got a little bit off center. I mean, that's the way that the world works. The more money you have, the more power you have, the more influence you have, the higher status you have, the fewer things you do for yourself and the more other people do things for you. Typically, people use their status and their power in order to be served. And, and that's why the way of Jesus stands in such stark contrast to the way of the world. It did 2,000 years ago and it still does today. 
And we're going to see maybe the epitome of the way that that looked in the passage of Scripture we're studying today. If you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter 13? John chapter 13. This chapter marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. And now, over the next few chapters, John chapter 13 through 17, we're going to read an, an extended dialogue that Jesus had with his disciples. It begins in a large upper room. And you could sort of picture it if it were a movie, it would be moving from the hustle and bustle and busy streets of Jerusalem to, to the quiet and serene space of an upper room. However, it's in this quiet upper room that Jesus is preparing his disciples for, with a, a new vision for how to live their lives, a, a new community that they would be a part of, and a new mission that they would go out on into the world. And listen to the way John chapter 13 begins. It says this, now, before the feast of the, what, say it with me, church, the Passover, so John wants to give us a, a bit of a, of a timestamp, a marker of when this, this meal that we're going to read about today is taking place. It's, it's before the feast of the Passover, and you need to know that Passover was a pilgrim feast. So there was people from all over Israel who traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Um, some historians would say that there were over 2.5 million people in Jerusalem during a Passover week, specifically during this Passover week. And, and, and ancient cities weren't designed to accommodate that many people. Uh, they, they didn't have the type of lodging, they didn't have the type of resources, and, and they definitely didn't have the type of sewer system in order to accommodate that type of an influx into the city. So the city of Jerusalem during Passover was celebratory, but it was also really, really dirty. And you just need to know that. Keep that in the back of your mind as we move forward. It'll be important in a moment says this, now before the feast of the Passover, and Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to go to the Father. So, so remember, John wants us to think about time in a bit of a different way. He wants to think about time based around Jesus's mission. And he's saying, like, Jesus's mission is coming to a point of culmination. The hour is finally here. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the what? To the end. He loved them to the end. Now this is John's synopsis, his, his commentary on the event that we are about to read about. What you are about to read about, what we're about to experience together is Jesus loving his disciples to the end. Now that word to the end in the Greek is the word telos. Would you say that with me? Telos. And I think it has at least three meanings when we read it in this context. Number one, Jesus's life on this earth is coming to an end and he is not going to stop loving his disciples. He's gonna love them all the way up to the end of his life. Second, that word telos could mean goal or, or, or purpose. So if you, were to, if you were to hypothetically set out to run a marathon, okay, and you said my goal or my purpose is to run this marathon in under four hours, when you cross that finish line and look at the time and it's 3.59, you have reached your telos. You've reached your goal. And I think in so many ways, Jesus is saying, 
what you're about, or John is telling us that what you're about to experience and see that Jesus is going to do is the reason he came. It's his goal. It's, it's him crossing the finish line, arms in the air going, that's what I came for. That's what it's all about. And then there's a, there's a third meaning. And, and I think it's maybe a little bit more buried underneath because I think what John means by this phrase is that not only does Jesus accomplish his goal, but that his accomplishing his goal does something to the objects of his affection. And not only does Jesus love to the end, not, a, not only does Jesus love to the point of fulfilling his purpose, but Jesus' purpose fulfilled somehow fulfills us. So somehow fills us up. See, apart from love, we are incomplete. There's a piece of us that, that need, maybe a big piece of us, that needs to be validated, that needs to know that we're enough. There was that really, really cheesy line in Jerry Maguire, a movie that came out a number of decades ago now, where um, Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger and he says, I love you. You, what? Com you complete me. And it was so cheesy. <laughs> but I think I got something right. That all of us, apart from love, I would say apart from divine love, are incomplete. We're looking for it. We're longing for it. We were, we were created for it. And I think what John is telling us is that Jesus' completed love somehow completes us. That he brings us to the end of the goal, his goal. And in a way, he brings us to, to full. He fills us up. Paul would later write to the church at Colossae, and he would say this, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you, you, Jesus follower, you, person who have put your faith in Jesus, you have been what? Filled in him. You've been brought to the point, some translations will say, you have been completed in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Um, please hear me in this. Look up from your notes for just a moment. Please hear me in this. You will either be completed in Jesus or you will be looking for completion your whole life. What Jesus does in this meal is a picture of him bringing to the end, fulfilling the purpose of all that you and I were designed to receive. Psychologist and author Kurt Thompson put it like this. He said, we are born looking for someone who is looking for us. And we never stop looking. I think all of us are asking the question, on a fundamental human level, am I enough? I think we're all asking, like, if, if, if you really knew me, would you love me? I think we're all asking, if, if you saw 
some of the things that went on in my heart, would you still, would you still value, would you, would you still accept me? And I think if we're honest, we all live with the fear. If I was really known, I'd be rejected. And the beauty of this meal is that Jesus speaks into all of those latent fears that we often hold, and he crosses the finish line. I say that pun intended, declares it is finished. You are both known and loved. Known and loved. See, this meal is about the reason that you were created and the thing that you long for most. It's the culmination and declaration of unfailing and undeserved love that completes you. Praise be to God. He loves you. He completes you. He takes you to your telos. Your end goal that God designed and wove into you. So let's look at how that plays out in this meal. Verse two, it says this, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus knowing, now now here here you guys, we're gonna be told three things about Jesus that allows him to get up from the meal and to begin washing feet. And I would suggest to you that if we're going to do what Jesus did, we have to know what Jesus knew. Here's the three things he knew. He knew that the Father had given how many things? All things into his hands. Jesus knew his authority. Second, he knew that he had come from God. He knew his identity. And he knew that he was going back to God. He knew his destiny. And so he rose up from the supper. Jesus knew his authority, he knew his identity, he knew his destiny, and therefore he was freed to get up from the meal and to get down on his hands and knees and start washing feet. And I'd suggest to you that you have to know the authority that God has given you as one of his children and one of his followers. You have to know the identity that he calls you beloved child, son or daughter of the Most High. And you need to know your destiny. He goes to prepare a place for you and he will bring you home. And if you don't know those three things, you will never be free to do what Jesus did. Here's what he did. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel and he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, The fact that Jesus gets up to wash his disciples' feet means that nobody else did. (laughs) That nobody else did. Now, it was typically the job of the host to, to have a servant who, upon entering, the servant, and it was typically the lowest servant in the hierarchy of servanthood of the day, the lowest servant would get down on their hands and knees and they would wash the feet of everybody who came in because, well, they'd just been walking through the dusty streets of Jerusalem that we just mentioned were absolutely packed because of Passover. So this wasn't like, um, this wasn't symbolic, <laughs> This was a necessity. Their feet were dirty. They were going to be lying down with their feet in each other's faces. So the fact that Jesus washes the disciples' feet means that nobody else 
did. And, and that makes sense. The, the, the upper room that they were in was a, a rented space. So no one was really hosting that meal. But it also means that every single one of those disciples sat down at that meal, put their feet in each other's faces with the thought, it's not my job to wash feet. That's somebody else's job. It's not what I do. It's what we hire people to do. That's the way this works. <laughs> so when Jesus gets up to start washing their feet, you just have to know that there would have been an awkward silence that fell over that dinner table. One where they looked at each other and went, No. It's like when, when you have an arrangement, hypothetically, with, um, with your wife, and um, if she makes dinner, you clean it up. Um, but in the back of your mind, you, you know if you sit at the table long enough, someone else is going to get up and they're going to do it, right? And then they get up to do it, and part of you goes, oh, man, that was... We were supposed, I, I think times a hundred, right? Jesus gets up, starts to get on his hands and knees and, and he begins to wash their feet and every single one of them silences over the entire dinner and they're going, no way is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords going to wash our feet. No way, no way. Teachers don't do that. Messiahs don't do that. I mean, this is once again, this is the donkey king. Once again, subverting all expectations of what it means to be royalty. Then and now. And if the whole point of what we're reading is the, the completion or the telos of love, I think we need to spend a few moments just digging into the nature of this foot washing love. There's three things that I want you to know, and I'd invite you to write these down. Three things that I want you to see in the text that Jesus does as a way that sort of draw out the nature of this love. Number one, John tells us that Jesus got up from the table and that he laid aside his outer garments. That he starts to undress. It's as though he's emptying himself of all that it means to be God, taking the form of a servant. It's a kenosis and, and emptying, but it's, it's also a, it's a vulnerable kind of love. It's a vulnerable kind of love. An emptying of self, and as C.S. Lewis would write, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. See, friends, we cannot love if we're unwilling to open ourselves up. You can't love if you're unwilling to risk being hurt. And I think so many times, I've been trying to sort of diagnose and, and look at my own heart this week, and, and so many times, I don't know about you, but I, I grow cold. And I have the ability to build a fortress around my heart to say, you're not, you're not going to hurt me again. I'm not going to open myself up again. I tried that once and it backfired. Anybody want to say amen? amen. I'm, not, I'm not shedding the outer layers. I'm building those up. That's how you stay safe in this world. Listen, it's also how you grow cold in this world. It's also how you prevent yourself from giving or receiving love in this world. 
And I think we so often can operate with self-protective defenses. We can refuse to admit when we're wrong. And we're often unwilling to show or share what's actually going on underneath. And Jesus rejects all of that. And he both literally and metaphorically takes off his outer clothes. And he says, you can see me. You can see me. Secondly, it says that he began to wash his disciples' feet. And we see that love is, is tangible. It's tangible. It's Jesus on his hands and his feet tangible. Like love isn't sending good thoughts or good vibes. We, you know that, right? Love isn't a feeling. It's not, I mean, I love, I love the Denver Broncos. I love California burritos. I love, that's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here. Love is getting down on your hands and knees and washing feet tangible. Love is, that's not my job tangible. And then finally, it says that he goes to each of his disciples. We see that love is, is personal. Yet, Yes, God so loved the world, so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. That is an unbelievable truth, and it is true. But do you know what's also true? God loves you. He doesn't just love the world. He loves you. And he makes his love, at this meal, he makes his love personal because love is most genuine and potent when it becomes particular. See, we can say we love our coworkers, but the question is, how do we serve them? We can say that we love our life group, but it's displayed in the ways that we show up and meet needs and share our life. We, we can say that we love our church, but it's, it's lived out by bringing a meal or offering a ride or serving with kids or students or hosting people in your home. Love is genuine and potent when it's made particular, personal. Specificity is the true test of love. And I don't know about you, but I love, I love that Jesus loves us in a vulnerable, tangible, and personal way. I don't know. Do you, do you love that he loves you that way too? Not as a, just as a unified mass, but he loves you. What a beautiful picture of the eternal hospitality of God. Loving us in this way and inviting us into his family, completing us in this way. It's a beautiful picture. But, but Peter doesn't receive it as such. Listen to what he says. It says, And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, and afterwards you will understand. And Peter said, I don't plan on understanding anything. Thank you very much. That's my addition, not in the Bible. But it's essentially what he says. Understand? Understand that the king's going to wash my feet? That, that seems like it may be beyond comprehension. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And I, I mean, man, you guys, I know Peter gets a bad rap sometimes. And we're like, oh, Peter. I, lo I love that Peter's a part of this narrative, don't you? Because in so many ways, he does what every single one of them should have done. Like, Jesus, we've seen you walk on water. We've seen you heal the blind man. We've seen you heal um, the, leader's the, the leader's son when you weren't even there. Like, we, we've, we've seen all of this. 
and you're going to get down on your hands and your knees and wash our feet? No way. No way. That's not the way things work. And Jesus would say back to Peter, and he would say back to you, and he would say back to me, if I do not wash you, you have no share, no part. You can't understand the story that you're in if you aren't willing to receive his love. Foot washing is necessary. The irony is that having your feet washed is necessary. The biting irony is that having your feet washed by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the same one who spoke you into existence, who dreamed you up, who wove you together in your mother's womb, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that maker gets down on his hands and knees and washes your feet. And if you can't accept that, and I get it, it's hard, but if you can't get there, he goes, you don't understand the story. You've got no part. You've got no part. See, Jesus' love expressed. I think what, what John's telling us is that Jesus' love expressed, and what Jesus is showing us at this meal is that his love expressed must become his love embraced. It must be love embraced. And I think, I think most of us are comfortable with Jesus touching our successes. Hey, Jesus, you can touch all the, the parts of me that I've gotten trophies for and the parts of me where I, where I really nailed it and where I stuck the dismount, all those things that I did right. Like, Jesus, I will allow you to touch those parts of me. And I think Jesus looks at us and goes, yeah, that's good, that's great, but I want to touch the dirty parts. I want to touch the parts of you that you don't want anybody else to see. I, I want to touch and I want to wash the guilt and I want to wash the shame and I want to wash the regret and I, I want to touch the failure. And, and here you guys, here's the deal, you guys. Unless we are willing to allow Jesus to touch the parts of us that we deem untouchable, unknowable, the parts of us that we would love to hide, unless we let him wash our feet, we will never truly experience his love and then his healing. It starts there. That, that's the place it starts. I think what Jesus is showing us is that we have to be willing to let him touch even the, the grossest, quote-unquote, dirtiest parts of us. And what we see in this meal, he has no problem going there with you. None. You might have a problem going there. He doesn't. So, so Peter <laughs> responds and says, <clears throat> well, if feet are good, then a whole bath must be better. <laughs> and, and I just think that this is this mixture of, of emphatic both emotion and excitement, but also confusion, right? It's just Peter wrestling with what's going on. Verse 10. And Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean and you are clean. But not every one of you, because he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. This is a complicated sort of section to try to nuance out and discern what Jesus is actually saying. So a few things I want you to note. Number one, that foot washing is simply one aspect of a much fuller cleaning. Because Jesus calls Peter completely clean before he ever washes his feet. So what is the, 
the bath, quote unquote, that makes us completely clean. I'm so glad you asked that. Listen to the way that Jesus would phrase it in John chapter 15, verse three. It says this, already you are what? Clean. There it is again. The same theme. He's following it through. Because of the word, I have spoken to you. See, I think the bath that results in us being clean is a response to the word that Jesus has spoken. It's, it's, it's faith in him. And faith is where cleansing forgiveness is found. But receiving his full love is where we are restored, brought back into relationship with God and made full, made complete. And we need both. We need both. Both the faith to say, I believe Jesus, that you are who you say you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You paid the penalty for my sin. I believe that. And we need to say, and I will allow you, as crazy as it sounds, I will allow you to wash my feet. I will receive your love so that I can be made full and complete in you. And it's, it's, it's both. It's both. It'll become all the more clear when we see that only Jesus can bathe, but other disciples are called to wash. Verse 12. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Just a quick time out. If, if I'm at that meal, <laughs> I'm hoping he doesn't pause long enough to actually get an answer. Aren't you? Do you understand what I've done for you? What's the answer? No. No. I mean, knowing myself, I'd probably try to pivot and go, hey, how about that Jerusalem football team this year? They're doing pretty good. Or this lamb is cooked perfectly, right? Hey, weather in Jerusalem this time of year, just great. I mean, I'd try to pivot out of the awkwardness of, do you get it? Do you get it? You call me teacher... And Lord, I, I, man, I wish I had way more time for this. I, I think a lot of times we're used to calling Jesus Lord or Savior, but we wrestle with calling him teacher because that would mean that we would do what he says. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you, what, say it with me, church, an example, an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If we call Jesus teacher, that means that we want to learn from him. And if we call him Lord, that means that we plan on doing what he says. <laughs> and Jesus says here, what you've seen, and what you've experienced in me washing your feet is, is an example. An example. Now, I've said it before, and I, I will say it again. Jesus came certainly as an atonement for sin. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he also came as an example of how to live. And he says to his disciples, when you really get what I have done for you, then you start to do it for one another. And, and I love that. Because if we do it for one another, that means that no one's outside of it. In so many ways, this is, this is like the death of a hierarchical pecking order. 
Like there's nobody in a, in a marriage that's outside of the realm of washing the feet of another. There's nobody in a church that's outside of the realm of washing the feet of another in a small group of, no one outside of the realm of washing the feet of another. We're all foot washers now. Like Jesus flipped the whole script. He changed the whole game. And if serving is below you, then leading is beyond you. This is the Jesus way. This is as we, as we look for new elders in our church family, what we're looking for are men who are willing to say, I will give and I will serve and I will love in vulnerable, personal, tangible ways so that this church might flourish. We're looking for foot washers, you guys. We're looking for foot washers. And I think what Jesus is saying to us is not only that we must embrace his love, but then once we do, Jesus' love embraced becomes love embodied. It becomes love lived. Not just experienced, but, but lived out and, and given in the same way. Vulnerable, tangible, personal ways. See, friends, we, we use the phrase, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And it's not a bad question. But I like the question, do you believe Jesus? Do you, do you believe him? Are you, are you willing to, to do what he, what he says? Are you willing to do what he calls you into? And just so we're, just so we're on the same page, <laughs> like living as a foot washer is not some kind of like duty-based drudgery. Jesus says, if you do these things, what are these things? What? Foot washing. <laughs> That's what they've just experienced. If you do these things, then blessed are, if you know these things, blessed are you if you, what? <laughs> do them. I jumped to the punchline. He goes like, knowing them isn't enough. You have to actually do that. You have to actually live them out. So what, what kind of life is the life that Jesus blesses? It's the foot washing kind of life. That's where his favor flows. That's what that word blessing means. That's where his good flows. You want God's favor on your marriage? Wash feet. You want God's favor in your friendships? Wash feet. You want God's favor with your roommates? Wash feet. You want God's favor in your workplace? Wash feet. You want God's favor with your coworkers? Wash feet. He goes, listen, you will be blessed when you do these. It's a promise. It's a promise. His favor flows into your life as you love others in vulnerable, tangible, and personal ways. Do you believe it? So um, I, I was just thinking about that this week. And there are so many people in our church body who embody this just beautifully. But let me tell you about a few of them. Because a lot of them you'll never, you'll never see. There's two men, Larry and Bob, they get here early every single Sunday morning to blow off our sidewalks. You won't see them unless you get here at about seven. Did you know that Pam Lawson, our head of security, patrolled our church from 10 p.m. till 6 a.m. every hour, every day that generator was outside? Lived here at the church and walked around the church every hour. 
10 p.m. to 6 a.m. It's a man named Bob Mason who shows up and he mentors students and men a few days every single week. We have life group leaders, dozens of them, who open their home to host people on a weekly basis to create space where people are known, valued, and loved. There's a man named Sean who goes to our church who opened his home to allow another man named Eddie to live with him, I think for the better part of a year. I think of Emilio and Rosario who serve weekly in our kids' ministry. I think of a group of women who get together every single Wednesday and pray for the needs of our church, for our nation, for our leaders. They're committed to lifting you up. I think of a woman named Carol who comes and prays over our worship spaces. Before any of you set foot in here, somebody has prayed over this space and they've prayed trusting and anticipating and asking God to move in your life. I think of people like Tom and Penny and Vicky who have loved my family in such practical ways. This is what it looks like to live as a grain of wheat who falls into the ground and dies so that others might experience the fruit. But what Jesus tells us here, the, 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 the twist is the fruit isn't just for others. You also get to taste it. That's the beautiful invitation. And as I was thinking about this, um, there's so many things I'd want to say about this passage. I, I wish I would have given four sermons on this text instead of just one. Um, but what I want to do is I, I just want to end by inviting you to ask where you might see yourself in this story. And there's three characters. So, so if this were a movie, what I want to do is just, I just want to zoom in on three people in this story and ask you, do, do you resonate with where they're at? Because I think there's three responses that you could have. Here's the first. I think you could resist like Peter. I think you could resist like Peter. And you may resist because you feel unworthy or maybe because you go like, hey, Lord, let me just get my feet a little bit cleaner and then you can wash them. I think a lot of us play that game with God. God, I'll let you touch the parts of me that I want to keep to myself, but let me clean them up a little bit before I bring them to you. Because I'm not sure your grace goes that far. I'm not sure you can clean someone or something this dirty. And so we resist like Peter. Friends, if that's you, I just want to remind you today that our life in Christ begins with his love showered down on us. It begins with him getting down on his hands and his knees and washing our feet. It begins with grace, and grace will bring us home. Secondly, jump down to verse 21 with me. There's, there's a character in the story I want you to see. His name is Judas. It says, and after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, and the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. I love that. Peter's like, I already stuck my, mouth, my foot in my mouth one time. John, you do it now. <laughs> but he's still giving commands, right? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread 
when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this. And some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Remember, John's a poet and it was night is John's way of telling us Judas is consumed by darkness. He's consumed by darkness. And unfortunately, um, you, you could respond in the same way. You could, you could resist Jesus' love like Peter, or you could flat out reject it like Judas. You could flat out reject it like Judas. Uh, Judas is scary in the story because I think he shows us that proximity to Jesus does not necessarily equate with intimacy with Jesus. Like you can be around him, but, but not have faith in him. You can be around church, but not have faith in him. You can come in these doors every single Sunday. And be like Judas. But, but here's what I want you to see. Even though Judas rejects Jesus, he cannot eliminate Jesus' love. He cannot stop his love. His love will keep going even when Judas says, I want no part of it. But, but you have to see this too, that Jesus is not going to force anybody to love him back. One of the most haunting lines in the entire Bible is Jesus saying to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. You made your decision. And I, if that's you today, if you're, if you're at the place where you're just rejecting Jesus and rejecting his love, I think it's good to name that. Just say, Lord, that, that, if you're even there, that's where I'm at. I don't want it. I'm going I'm to look for completion somewhere else. I don't want what you're offering. And then finally, there's John. And John is fascinating because it, it says that John is reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And it says that he's leaning back against Jesus. And he's close enough to Jesus where Peter can say to him, Hey, John, ask him a question. John, John, ask him who's going to betray him. And he's close enough. John's close enough to Jesus for him to whisper, who is it? And for Jesus to whisper back, it's the one who I give this piece of bread to. And nobody else hears. And this whole week, you guys, this whole week, I've been, I've been thinking about that picture of John so close to Jesus' chest, so close to Jesus' heart that he can have side conversations with him. And I'm like, Lord, I, I want to be that close. I, I want to be that close to your heart. I, I want to be that close to hear your whisper. I want to be that close to hear your heartbeat. I want to I be that close. I want to be that intimate. I want to be that tied into you. I, I want to I I rest like... John. That's what I want to do. I want to rest like John. That's been the challenge for me this week as I've thought about this passage. 
I want to be like John. I want to rest close to Jesus' heart. I want to find my home in his heart. As Pastor Dave Lomas said, a disciple is someone who's leaning back on Jesus, hearing his heartbeat, and from that perspective, looking out into the world. That's the kind of life that I want to live. And the irony, guys, the irony of the posture of resting against Jesus is that that is the very position from which we too rise to love and to serve just like him. See, as we know his heart, we're then completed in his love and freed to embody it in the world around us. He is the upside down king whose scepter is a towel and he calls his disciples to love like he loves. To love when it's not your job. To love when it's not reciprocated. To love when it's not convenient. To love when it's costly. To love when it hurts. To love even your enemies. Or how about we just say it like this? To love in personal, tangible, vulnerable ways. To love, period. Let's pray. So Lord, we would say back to you that we want to be those kind of disciples and those kind of followers who love. We want to be that kind of church that looks for ways to wash each other's feet. We want to be those kinds of spouses who would love, maybe even when it's not reciprocated. We, we want to be those kinds of friends who look for ways to value the other. We want to be so close to your heart that we sense your heartbeat, that we can hear your whisper, and that can we, we can respond to loving in the same way you loved. May it be so. May it be so. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.